Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Language, the Art and Science. For today's episode, we're talking about why language matters. So let's get started. The words we write or speak have immense power and are part of societal discourse, which both influences and is influenced by public policy. We believe that the words we use have the power to respectfully and accurately represent people and ideas, but they also can perpetuate ignorance and bias, leading to stigmatization, discrimination, with anywhere between 6,000 and 7,000 languages spoken in the world today. The words we choose are that much more important. Language creates perceptions, shifts perspectives, and evokes deep emotion. Language is not something that remains stagnant. Language is a critical factor in being informed and sensitive of others' perceptions. The use of identity-first language in which the characteristic precedes the person, autistic person, and person-first language in which the individual is placed in front of their characteristic, person with autism, is a topic of discussion spanning professional communities personal conversations, and social media. While there is a preference for first-person language, some individuals choose identity-first language. So whenever possible, ask the individual which one they prefer. Now we're going to hear from Kathy Snow on Speak about people-first language. People-first language is critically important. And, of course, a lot of people like to say, oh, it's just that PC stuff. But it's not. You know, Whenever people say it's PC, politically correct, um, that's a way of sort of putting it down, of saying it's not really important. Um, and I found that most people who even, you know, talk about, oh, it's just PC no matter what it is, are usually people that have never been on the receiving end of slurs or prejudice or discrimination. Most people who have been on the receiving end are, you know, are aware of the sensitivity to it. But People First Language was started by people with disabilities back in the 70s as really part of the People First movement um, that came out of, you know, the origin of the Scandinavian countries, came to Canada by way of a conference, and some people from Oregon went to the conference in Canada. And it was people with disabilities, specifically people with cognitive disabilities, who said, we are not our disabilities. We are people first. We're a per I'm a person first. And they also said, we can speak for ourselves. So that was the beginning of what we look back on now and call the People First Movement or the Self-Advocacy Movement. And when I was in the Partners Program in the night, so again, this was back in the 1970s, but all of us can be sort of slow learners, um, when I, including myself. When I was in the Partners in Policymaking program, um, 1990, 1991, all the graduates had to uh, com complete a project within you know, a few months of graduating. And I chose to write an article about People First Language. Uh, People First Language was sort of, uh, you know, it was sort of there, it was sort of around at that time, but not to the degree that it became later as more and more people got involved and interested in it. And so there weren't really any articles written about it. And I cared about it because I just hated the way people talked about my son. I hated the way the words that doctors and professionals used to describe my son. And I was like, that's not who my son is. I mean, you know, the handicapped or the, the cerebral palsy. Or the, I mean, all kinds of, you know, language. And, and then in the partners program, there were adults with disabilities who were helping me learn the, about the importance of it, about what it feels like to be described a certain way, and how you see yourself by how you're described. And at the same time, there were a couple of people in the class that had disabilities that talked about themselves in horrible ways. And you realize that they did that because that's the way their parents talked about them. 
Uh, I mean, children grow up talking and seeing themselves through the eyes and ears of their own parents. I mean, they, I, I love this wonderful quote. I think the lady's name is Marceline Cox. And she said, children can never be better than their parents think they are. I mean, children just, the, the mirror is by looking in our eyes. And, you know, they, they think they can't be very good because that's what the image that we've given them. And so people first language is very, very important. It's just, it's very simple. It's not hard to understand. You put the person before the disability. It's a person with a disability. It's not a handicapped person. We're going to get rid of that H word altogether. The H word is as pejorative as the N word is to, to other people. Now, let's look at some examples of biased language and adaptive person-centered language. So, for example, a diabetic patient is biased. Instead, it should use a person living with diabetes. A person afflicted with HIV, HIV positive, or HIV infected should be changed with a person living with HIV. People of color are incarcerated more often. Should be changed to institutional racism increases the rate of incarceration amongst people of color. Drug addicts and alcoholics should be changed to individuals living with a substance use disorder. Foreign language, so preferred primary language other than English or native language. Homeless, should be changed with individuals experiencing unstable housing. Inmates, felons or prisoners, should be individuals currently or previously incarcerated. Now some of you may be asking, why does this matter? When communicating about vulnerable populations, it is important not to assign feelings based on assumptions of one's own experiences or beliefs. And microaggressions are a common form of privileged language wherein accidental or purposeful bias statements are made towards or about a vulnerable population. So for example, telling someone who is a person of color that they are very articulate or a person living with a physical ability, they are more well for their situation. And cultural humility is defined as a lifelong process of self-reflection and critique whereby the individual not only learns about another's culture, but one starts to examine of their own beliefs and cultural identities. By integrating person-first language and practicing cultural humility, we can weed out issues like systematic racism, which presents itself through institutional racism, which is discrimination formed by following the dictated prejudice and biases of another and or society, and structural racism which is the bigotry founded in systems-based inequalities that isolates, penalizes, or harms a person or persons based on their cultural identity and or beliefs. These practices can also help give power to marginalized populations, which are groups and communities that experience discrimination and exclusion, both social, political, and economic, because of unequal power relationships across economic, political, social, and cultural dimensions. And this includes notions such as homophobia, sexism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, and anti-Arabianism. Thank you everyone for joining us for today's episode, and we'll see you next time.